Well, good morning. It's a blessing to be here. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians this morning. 2 Corinthians in the 5th chapter. And uh, we're going to be looking at some verses down at the end, toward the end of that chapter, beginning in about verse 14, in just a few moments. But it is a blessing to be here, and it's good to look out and see everyone that is here. We do have visitors with us this morning. And uh, we have one special visitor, can't uh, go without uh, mentioning this, but the visitor that I'm talking about is right back there, he's in a blue t-shirt, he's got his little glasses on, Jamie, <laughs> good to see you, good to have you home, man, <laughs> good to see you. You know, as, as Christians, our whole faith, our whole life is based upon the death of Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what a Christian lives his life off of, the death of Jesus Christ. Without the death of Christ, our life would be worthless, completely worthless. We would have no meaning, and of course our eternal destiny would be doomed to destruction. That, that, without the death of Christ, our, our whole world evolves around the death of Christ. All preaching needs to get back to the cross. You know, the Apostle Paul says, I know nothing than the cross. I preach nothing but the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, what he meant by that? Of course, the emphasis is the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, from that comes a lot of stuff, right? All of the truth, all the teaching of Jesus Christ, and it's not just that he died, but also that he's been raised. To sit at the right hand of God. He now has all authority and power in heaven. He is the ruler of the universe right now. But that was accomplished through his death, through his sacrifice. And through his sacrifice, we can be redeemed. This morning, I want to answer a couple of questions. First of all, something that came up this past week on the radio program. And also was in, involved in a discussion on our, one of our Facebook pages. The uh, death of Christ, someone posted that, G that God loved and valued mankind enough that His Son died for all men. There were people who, uh, who opposed that. They, they ridiculed that. Um, and they were professed Christians. Uh, one of the guys... Well, he was a Calvinist, and he eventually even called the radio program, and he was listening from Costa Rica. And uh, he called in, and we had a discussion, but it all stemmed from him denying that Jesus died for all men. For whom did he die? How will the death of Jesus affect my life? And most importantly, how will Jesus affect my eternity? Those are some questions that we're going to be trying to find Bible answers to this morning. And our study is, of course, going to be focused on the death of Christ. First of all, in a negative way, let me say to you some reasons why Jesus did not die for you. Jesus did not die for me or for you so that we could continue to live in sin. The very fact that Jesus did die was because of our sin, so that he could deliver us from our sin. 
not just from the guilt of our sin, but also deliver us from the bondage of sin and deliver us from the practice of sin. We must die with Him, and that includes dying to our sin, as we talked about in our Bible class this morning from Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. We must die to sin. Jesus did not die so that I could live for myself. He did not die so I could do whatever I want to do. Jesus did not die so that I could satisfy my every carnal and materialistic desire. Absolutely not. Jesus did not die so that I could be successful in my worldly aspirations. My friend, Jesus did not die so that these people who score a touchdown can get up and do a dance and say, thank you, Jesus. Jesus had nothing to do with that touchdown, I promise. The death of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with your financial or your physical aspirations and your successes. Nothing at all to do with the materialistic satisfaction that you may get out of this world. Jesus did not die so that you could have an easy, happy, earthly life. There are some prosperity preachers on television that will tell you that, that he did. He died so that you could have your best life now. No. Jesus did not die so that you could have your best life now. Jesus Christ died so that you could have eternity with him. Big difference there. And the truth of the matter is, those who follow Jesus will have to die with him. We die to sin. We die to ourself. And in many cases in history and perhaps, well, even in other places now, people die physically because they are serving Jesus. They're martyrs today just like they were 2,000 years ago. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, Paul says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For we are beside ourselves, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Now, first of all, Paul, in his preaching the gospel, was ridiculed and persecuted. People accused him of being out of his mind. People accused him for, for, of being dishonest and an apostate. They tried to kill him. The Jews often tried to stone him to death. But he was serving the Lord. And the benefit of that was reaped by those to whom he preached, who believed the gospel. And he was compelled to do all of this by the cross of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Why did Paul travel those thousands of miles on foot and by boat and suffer all the things that he did? Because the love of Christ compelled him. The love of Christ was manifested in the cross. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on that cross motivated the Apostle Paul to die for the Lord. And Paul makes this point that if 
Christ died for all, then all died. Just as widespread as the problem of sin goes, just as much as it has permeated the human race, so also is the provision of His blood. It has gone out to all, to all the human race. There are some things in this passage that I think is very important for us, first and foremost, to understand. Then we'll kind of use this to prompt us into some other questions and, and some applications of the principles. But first and foremost, let us understand, if it were not for the death of Jesus, we would all be lost. We would have no hope. Without the sacrifice of Christ, we would all be lost in an eternal hell fire. That would be the result of Jesus not coming and dying on the cross for us. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 9 through 18, the Hebrew writer says this, beginning in verse 9, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will praise you, I will sing praise to you. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me, inasmuch then... As children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, if Jesus had not died, that conqueror, that, or that wicked one, Satan, who has conquered man through death, if he had not, Jesus had not died, then that enemy would not have been conquered. The one who had conquered us would not be conquered in return and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. If Jesus had not have died, we would have had no hope. We could go to chapter 9, verse 22, that, and the point of his blood. If Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Without the shedding of Jesus' blood, we could not have been forgiven. Jesus died for all. That's another important point from this passage. As Jesus died for all, that implies that all died. In John 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died for the world. In Hebrews 2 and verse 9, again, He died for all men. In 1 John 2 and verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of of the whole world. Jesus died for all. And that means he died for you. Now, I, I had that discussion this past week with this Calvinist. And uh, during our discussion, we also talked privately. 
during our discussions, this is what I told him. As a Calvinist, after what he had told me regarding Jesus didn't die for everyone, if, if he had died for everyone, then all would be saved. Of course, they don't understand the difference between the provision of that salvation, which Jesus made for all, and the reception of that salvation is through our will receiving that. They don't make that distinction. But here's the deal. If I were a Calvinist, and this is so sad, if I were a Calvinist, I could not look you in the eye and tell you that Jesus loved you and that Jesus died for you. I could not tell you that. Because, number one, they don't believe that he did. Number two, only the elect are the ones for whom he died. And I don't know who the elect are and who they're not. I could not look you in the eye and say, Jesus loved you and died for you and wants to save you. I couldn't tell you that if I were a Calvinist. Isn't that sad? But I, listen, I can tell you, Jesus loved you. Jesus loved you so much that he died for you. Jesus wants to save you. Will you receive what he gave? That's the question. Will you accept it? That's the question. Jesus died for you. We are not to live for ourselves, but for Jesus. Since Jesus died for you, now there is a responsibility that is placed upon you. That is, you must live for him who died for you. And to not live for him is to reject that sacrifice. It is to dishonor that sacrifice. It is to consider the death of Jesus as just a common thing, an unnecessary thing, an unimportant thing to you. We are not to live for ourselves, but for Jesus. And there are many passages in 1 Peter chapter 1, which was read by Cooper in the scripture reading this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. The emphasis is upon living a holy life. We must be holy as God is holy. Okay, but then Peter makes this important point. For you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver or gold. But by what? By the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's what cost God to save you. The blood of his son. That's what cost Jesus to save you. His own blood. You were purchased, you were redeemed with the blood of Jesus Christ. So therefore, since Jesus died for me, and I need to understand that, that was, a, that, that was an extremely valuable and costly sacrifice. The suffering of the Son of God. I need to learn some things. I need to respond to that. How do I respond to what Jesus did for me? I need to learn first and foremost the will of Christ. In order to follow Him, in order to live for Him, I have to know what He wants me to do. So I need to learn what His will is for my life, and I need to follow that. I need to learn and follow the teaching of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's exclusive spokesman. Today in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Now, Jesus, remember 
appointed 12 apostles. And he commissioned them to go out into the world and to teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. I just quoted Matthew 28, verse 19. Now, the Lord commissioned these apostles to go out and teach all men. But Jesus is the one who came from above. Jesus is the one who is now our, our head, our, our authority, our standard. He is the one who has revealed the will of God for us. The words of Jesus give life. John 6, 63, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Romans 1 and verse 16. The gospel is God's power to save men. The gospel, the message about Jesus Christ and the teachings of Jesus Christ. You can't separate those things. Jesus is the one to whom we must turn for salvation. He is the one that we must follow in order to be saved. He is the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And the idea is he has blazed, blazed the trail. Listen, we must follow the trail that he blazed. We must follow him. The words of Jesus are authoritative. Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? A lot, of people, a lot of people sadly try to do just that. They try to call him Lord, but then they don't do what he says. That won't work. Whatever we do in word or deed, we must do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Colossians 3.17 The only way, the only way to please God, the only way to come to God in our day is through t the teaching of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14, 6. The words came from heaven in Matthew 17, verse 5, on the Mount of Transfiguration. The words that thundered from heaven were these. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. This was the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, and verse 18, that was foretold by Moses. That those who would not hear that prophet would be cut off. We must hear Jesus Christ. His words are authoritative, and the only way to please the Father is to hear the Son, to follow the Son. John 12 and verse 48, Jesus says, The words that I speak to you will judge you in the last day. All men will be judged according to the words of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ since he died for you, listen, he has redeemed you if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, he died for you so that you could become a Christian. But it is his words now that you are to live by. And through which you can be saved if you will simply submit your will to his. And follow his teaching. Since Jesus died for you, you need to learn his teaching. And you need to follow him. Or else the opposite of salvation will be true for you. People say, well, I just don't know, I just don't, I, I just don't think that God will punish people in hell. Listen, you reject the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, 
you spit in the face of God regarding the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross? Yes. God is just to condemn eternally those who reject Him. Jesus died to save you. You want to reject that and suffer the consequences? That's up to you. Jesus died for me. And therefore, I, I want to serve Him. You know, when people do good things for you, they are so helpful. That should engender an attitude of wanting to reciprocate that. You know, wanting to be you know, helpful to them too. Wanting to do good for them. And that should just be the natural response of a thoughtful person. Well, Jesus died to save us. What are we going to do now in response? The love of Christ compels us to do what? It should compel us to serve Him. Shouldn't it? It should compel us and move us and motivate us to be servants of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus has called us to be workers. We're not called to be watchers, you know, and, and to be entertained by somebody or a group of somebodies. Or, or Jesus has not called us to just do whatever it is we want to do. Jesus has called us to be workers in His vineyard. Jesus has called us to be servants and to serve one another. Matthew 25, verse 34 through 46. Those who were helpful to others, beneficial, those who did good things, helped, kind, generous, those are the type of people that God rewards. And listen, why do we do those things? Because Jesus died for us. We do those things because we love Him for what He's done for us. And thus, we are compelled by His love. The grace of God. We're saved by God's grace, Ephesians 2 and verse 8. Well, what is the grace of God? The grace of God is manifested in the sacrifice of Jesus. The provision that was made for our sins in Jesus Christ. That's the grace of God. And by thinking about that great sacrifice, God's unmerited favor that He's extended to us, we must respond in faith, and we also must respond in works. Ephesians 2 and verse 10. We are to be, as Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 says, zealous to good works. We have been redeemed so that we are to be zealous in good works in our service to the Lord. In Romans chapter 12 and verses 9 through 13, the Apostle Paul emphasizes the need to be servants, to be servants, be a servant of one another, to fit within the body, to do the things in the body that are needed to be done for the betterment of the body itself, for the members of the body. And so throughout this text, the Apostle Paul is emphasizing our need to be servants of Jesus Christ. Notice though he says in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. That means genuine, it must be real. Our love must be true. Now, out of that love is going to flow a lot of things. Abhorring evil is certainly one of them. But cling to what is good is the positive aspect of that. To be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, prefer, in preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, con continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 
We do all of this because Jesus died for us. Faith without works, we're told, is dead. Certainly. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 24, James begins with the question, Can faith without works save you? That was his question. The obvious answer is no. He uses actually an act of love to illustrate the principle. If someone comes to you who is in need of food and clothing, and they say to you that they are in need of food and clothing, and you say to them, Go and be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things needful for the body. What good is it? Love is manifested in action. If there are no actions for the betterment of others, then there is no real love. We must be doers of the word and not hearers only. We need to encourage one another to be workers. We need to encourage one another to love and to good works. Ephesians 10, or Hebrews 10 and verse 24. And by the way, since I'm there, let me just emphasize this. We come together as Christians on the first day of the week to assemble together, first and foremost, to worship God. Come to honor Him, to reverence Him, to be thankful to Him, to praise Him for what He's done for us. And all that is made possible through the sacrifice of Christ. That's certainly the primary purpose for us coming together. We come to worship the Lord. But a major benefit and side effect of that, or side effect of that, is this. We encourage one another to love and the good works. We edify and build up each other. We help each other. That's another thing that we're here for. We sing songs to encourage, to teach, and to build each other up. We pray for each other. That will encourage us and help those who aren't able to be here. But that's certainly something that we can do together is pray for them. And of course, we study God's Word. And of course, the main thing that we do, and the main reason we come together again is to worship God, but the main focus should be together around the table. To commemorate what? The death of Jesus. Why do you think it's so important to the Lord that we remember His death? When we observe the Lord's Supper, we are to remember His death. That then is to motivate us to be servants, to serve as He served, to remember what He's done for us so that His love will compel us to be a faithful servant. Ephesians 4, verses 12 through 16, the church is organized, the local church is organized, and the things put in the local church to bring about that service in each member's life. That's the whole purpose of a local church. is to equip members for service. That's why you have within the local church the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers. To teach the members of that local church how to serve the Lord. To help them to grow in their knowledge and understanding of the Lord. And to live 
in a way that's pleasing to God and to be a service in the body. So that each member can affect the growth of the body. Ephesians 2.16 If we are not faithfully serving the Lord, then we will not bear fruit for Him. And if we are not bearing fruit for Him, listen, we will be cut off. John 15.1-8 What about those branches of the vine that did not bear fruit? He cut them off and cast them to the fire. Jesus died for me. Here's another thing that I want you to think about. Jesus died for me, therefore I want to be forgiving. The very fact that Jesus suffered and bled and died for me manifests the mercy of God, the compassion of God that He has for us. Going back to that discussion that I had this past week. One of the comments was that, so you think that man is worthy of God's love. That is so man-centered, they said. They don't understand love. Love is a choice. That includes the love that God has for us. God chose to love us. Listen, no, we're not worthy of His love. We don't deserve His love. God, though, chose to love us anyway. Romans 5 and verse 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. This, as, as Paul says in verse 5, the love of God is manifested in this. That's an important thing to remember. I don't deserve what God did for me. Now let me ask you this. Even though the person who has wronged you, you think, well, they don't deserve my forgiveness. Don't work like that, does it? Doesn't matter whether they deserve it or not. Nobody deserves it. Nobody deserves being forgiven for something they've done wrong. If you just want to talk about justice, if we all got what we justly deserved, we'd all be condemned forever. I'm glad God does not treat us the way that so many people treat others. I want to be forgiving. Jesus loved us enough to die for us so that we could be forgiven of our sins against God. Luke 23 and verse 34, as he's hanging on the cross, he looks down at his murderers. He looks down at that mob of people who yelled out, crucify him, crucify him. He looks down at these people and what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now it is true. They did not obtain forgiveness, forgiveness from God until Acts chapter 2, when they repented of their sins and they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Because Peter convicted them of their sin in Acts chapter 2. In verse 36, this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised up and made both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. Why? Because they felt the guilt of what they had done. And so they pleaded with Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He continued to speak 
to them, exhorting them to be saved. And in verse 41, those who received his word were baptized. And there were 3,000 souls added to them that day. The example of Jesus, he was willing, ready, desiring to forgive even those who had crucified him. He died for them. Because I have been forgiven. If I'm a Christian, I am. If you're a Christian, you have been forgiven by God of your sins. By virtue of the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus died so that you could be forgiven. And you, if you're a Christian, has received that forgiveness by obeying the gospel. How dare you not forgive others who come to you? How dare you withhold forgiveness from another person? How dare you? Just as Christ has forgiven us, so, these are the words of the Apostle Paul, so must you also do. We should always have a heart of forgiveness, always desiring to forgive. Now listen, there is a difference between forgiving and holding, you know, not holding a grudge. I cannot hold a grudge against anyone. And I should always be wanting and desiring to be forgiving of everyone who has wronged me. Now, I can't forgive anybody for their sins they've committed against God. I can't do that. And I don't care what a priest in the Catholic Church tells you. He can't do it either. But I will tell you this. I can forgive you if you've wronged me. And how dare I withhold that? How dare I be resentful and bitter towards you? I must be merciful and compassionate, desiring to let you off the hook for what you've done to me. Not holding it against you. Now, in order to receive fellowship and for us to be best buddies and friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, something's going to have to happen on your part. You're going to have to make amends the best you can. You're going to have to have to say, you know, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Now, fellowship cannot be restored until that takes place. But I must have the desire, genuine, sincere desire to forgive you. It's required of me if I want to be forgiven of my sins to forgive you of yours. And I want to stand with him. Jesus died for me. Therefore, I want to stand with him in doing what is right. He sacrificed his life so that I may be right with God. I need to live up the best I can to the sacrifice he made for me. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Colossians 1 and verse 23. Continue in the faith. Hebrews 3 and verse 14, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12, all these passages emphasizing the need to persevere, to do what's right regardless. I must stand opposed to wickedness. I cannot condone anything that is contrary to the Word of God. I cannot go with people who are practicing evil and engage in 
things that will encourage them to do that which is evil. I must always stand opposed to wickedness. That's why I may love and be uh, desirous of a person's forgiveness and the need for them. I recognize the need and encourage them to turn away from their sin. But I will never condone someone in their sin, whether it's an adulterous marriage or a homosexual relationship, whatever it may be. How can I condone the, the living together of people who aren't married? Can't do that. It's wrong. I must stand opposed to those things, regardless of whether it's socially acceptable or not. Even if it means that I'll be persecuted for what I say. I must stand opposed to wickedness. Adultery is sin. Always will be. Regardless of how culturally acceptable it may be. Homosexuality is sin. It's not hate speech to say homosexuality is sin. That's not hate speech at all. It's the truth of God. I must stand opposed to wickedness. I must allow the light of God's word, not my opinions, mind you, but the light of God's word to shine upon that and to expose it for what it is. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. I must defend the teaching of Jesus Christ. I must stand with him by defending his teaching. Now listen, here's something else that I hope that we do understand. Doctrine has consequences. Just like someone would say, well, you know, Calvinism's not that big of a deal. I mean, what difference does it make whether you are, and it's the way people classify groups of people, not necessarily the way that I'm classifying them or classify them. But this is what they say. Well, what difference does it make if you're a Calvinist or you're an Arminian? What difference does that make? Somebody said that this past week. What difference does it make? Well, I'll tell you right now, it makes a lot of difference. If you're a Calvinist and you believe Calvinism, you're going to come to conclusions that, conclusions that will cost you your soul. Because it puts God in, a, in an ungodly light. You have to believe some things about God that simply are not true. And that will affect your life. You have to believe some things about Jesus that are not true. And then you also, in the, in the process of, of doctrinal uh, evolution, if you will, it will bring about your rejection of the gospel message itself. Doctrine has consequences. We must defend the truth. Now certainly all things are not equal. You know, every aspect of the Bible teaching is not important. I mean, whether you know the mother and father of Moses or not is not going to cost you your soul. But you need to learn the principles that are established in the Word of God, and you need to learn the truth about what Jesus wants from you. And that begins by understanding the truth about who He is and what He's done for you. And we need to learn the truth, know the truth, and teach the truth. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude Verse 3. That requires courage. Because false doctrine is everywhere today. 
It requires courage to stand up for the teaching of Jesus Christ in our society, doesn't it? It takes courage. It takes strength. As God told Joshua in the days of old, in Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, be courageous. It takes courage to do what's right. God has provided us with the means by which we can stand against all of the wiles of the, of the wicked one, against all of Satan's weapons. We are given through Christ, through the truth, everything we need to stand against. Error, false doctrine, false practices, sin, against temptation that comes into our life. We are given from Christ all that we need. That's why Paul did say in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Doesn't mean he can jump the, uh, jump the tallest building in the world in a single bound. That's not what he means. He can do the things that Christ has given him to do. And so can you. And you know where it all begins? It begins at his death. And the motivation that comes from what Christ did for us. I had a fellow tell me one time that members of the Church of Christ believe that a man hanging on a cross 2,000 years ago is sufficient to motivate us to do what's right, and he laughed at that idea. He believed that you have to have a lot more than that. My friend, what else do you need? If the blood and sacrifice of Christ is not enough to motivate you to live godly, to live faithfully, to be faithful to God, and to humbly serve others, if that won't motivate you, what will? How dare someone so minimize the sacrifice of Christ? You see, I need to learn and to follow the teaching of Jesus. You know why? He died for me. He gave his life so that I may have life in him. Jesus died for me, and therefore I want to serve him with all my heart. Jesus died for me, so I want to be forgiving to others. I want to be merciful like him, compassionate. I want to love like Jesus. Listen, I want to be like Jesus. I want to stand with him because he loved me enough to die for me. Why did Jesus have to die? C.S. Lewis once said that if he were the only human being that God had ever made, and he had sinned against God, that Jesus would have died for him. I believe that's true. I believe that... that Jesus would have died regardless whether it's one or ten billion or gazillion human beings who need a sacrifice. Regardless, Jesus died because we couldn't be saved without it. He died for everybody. That means, my friend, I can look you in the eye and I can tell you that Jesus loved you enough to die for you so that you can be forgiven of your sins and that you can have everlasting life with the Father. That's who Jesus died for. You. 
How will the death of Jesus affect my life? You know, that's up to me. How will I value his death? We choose what we value, just like God chose to value us enough to give, a, give his son for us. We must choose to value his death enough to serve him. And we must serve him not as men pleasers, but as servants of the Lord. Another question is, how will Jesus' death affect my eternity? That depends upon my response to the sacrifice of Christ. Will I humbly bow before the Lord and submit to His will? Will I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? John 8, 24 says, except you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Jesus died for you so that if you believe in Him, that you can be saved. Now, that belief must be a belief that obeys. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, the belief, that belief is going to motivate you to do what He says in Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Though He were a Son, yet He suffered. He learned obedience through suffering. And being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey Him. You want to be saved. That's what you have to do. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10, what about those who do not obey the gospel? Everlasting separation from God. Have you been baptized into his death? Romans chapter 6, the apostle Paul asked this question in verse 1. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we who have been freed from sin live any longer therein? And verse 3 says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ... We're baptized into his death. We come into contact with the, with the benefit of his death when we're baptized by faith into him. Then we are raised to walk in newness of life because we've been cleansed of our sins. Now we are to serve him and live for righteousness. We are now a slave of righteousness. We're now owned by Jesus and we're to serve him. Are you living for him who died for you? Is your life governed by the death of Jesus Christ, motivated by his death, and governed by him now who has been raised from the dead? Maybe you're here this morning, you've never rendered obedience to the gospel. Maybe you are separated from God because of your sin, and you need the death of Christ applied to you. The only way to do that is by faith, to confess him before men, to be to turn away from your sins and be buried with Him in baptism, to be raised to walk in newness of life. If you have been saved from your past sins, let me ask you, are you living for Him? My friend, Jesus Christ died for you so that you can live with Him forever. But that's going to depend upon your response to what He's done for you. What else do you need? If the love of Christ does not compel you what will. If we can help you in any way, please come while we stand and while we sing.